are in for a real treat this morning. We have a special guest speaker, our pastor, our regular full-time pastor. He's on sabbatical for the summer. So if you're new with us, we've been going through a series of different speakers. And today we are very blessed to have um, Antonia, I'm not going to say your name right, Josip Gonzalez, who um, just graduated with her PhD from Fuller. She's going to bring the word to us this morning, so this is going to be a real privilege. Before she comes up, though, I'd like to read the text this morning found in the book of Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah, and to Gisham the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had built the wall, and that there was no gap left in it, though up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Gisham sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat sent for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gisham also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to this report, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, There is a king in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these words, So come, therefore, and let us consider together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. One day, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Delilah, son of Mahilabel, who was, confined, who was confined to his house, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, tonight they are coming to kill you. But I said, Should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived and saw that God had not sent him at all, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sabalat had hired him. He was hired for this purpose, to intimidate me and to make me sin by acting in this way. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. The word of the Lord. Good morning to you all. Um, those of us uh, who will be preaching through the month of August um, agreed that we would um, do all our sermons on Old Testament characters um, and examine their relationship uh, with God and see what we can learn about, about God and about servanthood from those characters. Um, the text we, have, we just heard read is from Book of Nehemiah, one of the prominent protagonists in Jewish history. In order to understand this book and this passage, we need to review just briefly uh, the history that preceded the words of Nehemiah. Now, during King Solomon's reign, 
the twelve Jewish tribes were united in a kingdom of great prosperity. When Solomon dies almost ten, cent- ten centuries before Christ in 922, the kingdom is divided into two kingdoms. Uh, the first northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel, and it consists of ten tribes. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah, and it consists of two tribes. I think we have a map of that. Maybe. There it is. So you see the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, is Samaria. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem. In 722 before Christ, the Assyrians come and conquer the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. In 586, Babylonians come and conquer the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. When Babylonians and Assyrians come into Jewish kingdoms, they scatter the Jewish people all around their provinces. So everybody is in exile. In 539 before Christ, Persian Empire conquers Babylonia, who now holds Judah. So the Persian Empire takes over what Babylonians used to keep, the Judah as well. Now, when the Persian King Cyrus, I believe we have his picture, the Persian King Cyrus, there he is. When he conquers his territories, Judah included, the Bible says he is miraculously stirred up. And this Persian king issues a decree allowing Jewish people to return from exile back to their country back to their city of Jerusalem, and he decrees that they should go back and rebuild their temple. Under Cyrus, more than 42,000 Jews return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city and the temple. Solomon's temple is in ruins, so they start building the second temple in Jerusalem. So this is the background for the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These two books are our principal source of information. What happens to Jewish nation during the first century of Persian rule? What happens under Persians? There are other books in the Bible that address these questions as well. Many prophets, some of the Psalms, uh, address issues in Babylonian captivity. Now, Cyrus's successor, Artaxerxes, commissions Ezra. Ezra is a priest and a scribe. Persian king commissions Ezra to take charge of the religious affairs in Jerusalem. If you read Ezra 7, you will read that decree of the Persian king Artaxerxes and what he commissions Ezra to do in Jerusalem. When Ezra comes to Jerusalem to protect himself against his enemies, he starts building a wall around the city. Not only is he building the temple, Every city needs a wall to protect, him from, to protect the city from the enemies. However, when Judah's neighbors to the north, Samaritans, hear that the Jerusalem is building a wall, that the people of Jerusalem are building the wall, Samaritans interfere 
and write a letter to the Persian king, Artaxerxes. And this letter is given to us in Ezra 4. And this is what this letter reads. This is what the Samaritans are saying about the Jews building the wall. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now may it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be reduced. It is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possessions in the province beyond the river. King Artaxerxes, upon receiving this letter, issues orders that the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem ought to immediately cease. Such was the condition of the city when Nehemiah comes to the scene. When Nehemiah starts writing his memoirs, this is the condition of the city of Jerusalem. It is still in ruins, and especially the wall that is supposed to defend the city is in ruins. And here is what we read at the beginning of Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, this is December 446 before Christ. While I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, The survivors there, in the province who escaped captivity, are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, Nehemiah is in Susa, which is the winter palace of Persian kings in today's Iran. And his brother reports to him uh, that the new temple that Ezra is rebuilding could be destroyed easily by the enemies because no proper stand could be made without a defense wall. Jerusalem and, his, and their inhabitants are still a very easy game for their enemies. Now, the description of defenseless and dishonored state of the city of Jerusalem wounds Nehemiah deeply. He's not there. He's in the Persian capital. But he says the following, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned four days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And the city of Jerusalem in, is in such condition uh, that even Josephus describes uh, the vulnerability of that city. And this is what Josephus, uh, one of the Jewish historians from the first century, says about the city. The surrounding nations were inflicting many injuries on the Jews, overrunning the country and plundering it by day and doing mischief by night, so that many had been carried off as captives from the country and from Jerusalem itself, and every day the roads were found full of corpses. That is the condition of the city, and that wounds Nehemiah deeply. And he prays the following prayer of confession and supplication to God. I said, 
O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now this man happens to be King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah has a plan. See, Nehemiah is at that point the cupbearer to the very king Artaxerxes. The position of the cupbearer was one of the oldest and highest positions in the Persian court. It is not as high as a minister of state like Joseph or Daniel were in foreign courts. But among the household servants... Nehemiah would have been a very, had a very prominent place. He would have had a special privilege of admission to the Persian king uh, in his most private seclusion. So Nehemiah has a plan. Here is what happens. One day, when he is in the court of the king, he says, When wine was served to him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you're not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. It was very risky for Nehemiah to show sympathy with the city of Jerusalem in front of this very king that had been so displeased with the city of Jerusalem when they started building their walls. However, Nehemiah goes forward with his request. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The answer as follows. And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Not only did this Persian king allow him to go, but he appointed him a governor of Jerusalem. And he gave him letters of introduction to all the other local governors. The documents granted him proper authority and guaranteed safe conduct. But not only that, this Persian king recognizes that Nehemiah needs material necessary for the reconstruction of the wall. So he commissioned Nehemiah to harvest rare and costly cedars from the royal hunting park in distant Lebanon. And so Nehemiah leaves the capital, the Winter Palace, where he had it good, 
and goes to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he first inspects the wall, the ruins of the wall in the night without telling anybody that he's there and what he's about to do. In the morning, Nehemiah sits down the Jewish officials in Jerusalem and tells them, and tells them of his intention. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So he inspires them. He gets them all fired up for building of the wall. We'll finally have a wall. Not only will it fortify the place for battle, but it will also be a guarantee that God's people will again be separated from idolatrous heathen nations that surrounded them. People of God would again be pure and holy if this wall is built, if this wall is completed. However, not everybody is happy with the developments. Not everybody is happy. And here Nehemiah lists several occasions um, when some people have responded differently to the news. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. At another place, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Who are these guys? Sanballat is the governor of the city of Samaria. Tobiah is a chief of a little tribe of the Ammonites, some of whom now live in Samaria. They are joined by the Arab named Geshem, who rules a league of Arabian tribes, which took control of Moab and Edom. And if we look at the map, I have a map there, which shows that Judah and Jerusalem are now surrounded by the enemies on north, east, and south sides. All of them wish that this wall never be built. Uh, what is it to them if Jerusalem builds a wall? They're all under Persians anyways, not like they're free. What is their beef with Judah? When building of the wall stopped earlier. Remember that Samaritans were the ones who wrote that letter to this very king, Artaxerxes. When building of the wall stopped earlier, Jerusalem had fallen under the jurisdiction of Samaria. So Sanballat, who is the governor of Samaria and now has broadened his sphere of influence into Jerusalem, of course doesn't want to see that taken away from him. He doesn't want Nehemiah, a new governor, to make things right for Jerusalem. Of course, the reason for their animosity are not only political, they're also religious. Uh, the Jews of Judah did not think that Samaritans were truly Jewish. And this rivalry between Jerusalem and Samaria obviously persists into the New Testament times. So the enemies are determined to undermine the work and the confidence of the Jews. What do they do? First, they mock them. Sanballat said in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, 
What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, That stone wall they are building, any fox going up on it would break it down. They mocked the Jews for being hopelessly over-optimistic. Nobody can repair those walls. The ruins were beyond repair. And Tobiah's little jest chimes in with Sanballat's sarcasm, implying that the materials they're building with are completely inadequate. Little fox would break the whole thing down. Nehemiah's response is as follows. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Yet another prayer. Prayer emerges as the first and the most essential defense measure for Nehemiah through this struggle to build a wall. The next thing that the enemies try is to frighten them. They say, we're going to come and we are going to wage battle with you. We're going to fight you, you people of Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem get scared and discouraged, and they say, what are we going to do? Shall we just drop this whole thing? They're going to come and fight us. They're more numerous than we are. To that, Nehemiah responds, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They continue to build a wall, but they have guards protecting the city in case they attack. Of course, the enemies make empty threats. They wouldn't dare to disobey the order of the Persian king directly and fight the people of Jerusalem. However, so far, they had tried discouraging the whole nation with their threats and ridicule. In spite of their efforts, chapter 6 Starts, the chapter that Ted had just read starts with saying that Nehemiah had raised the walls all around the city. But now, in chapter 6, the attack of the enemies turns personal. It turns to the leader, Nehemiah himself. What did they do? First, as Ted had read, they sent him a letter saying, Hey, Nehemiah, come meet us on the plain of Ono, and we'll discuss this whole thing together. Nehemiah writes back and says, oh, I, I can't really come, I'm busy, I'm, I'm building a wall, which is kind of humorous to imagine these people receiving his response, you know, saying, I can't come, I'm, I'm too busy, I got too much work, I'm building, building a wall. And he's, they say, uh, grr, we know you're building a wall, that's why we want you to come here and drop that business. Three times they write to him with the same invitation, come meet us in Ono. Ono just happens to be a whole day journey away from Jerusalem and situated in the midst of hostile territories. So Nehemiah recognizes they meant to do me harm. So he refuses to come and meet with them. After four letters comes the fifth letter. When Sanballat turns up the heat, he puts greater pressure upon Nehemiah by charging that the work they're doing is really preliminary to rebellion against the Persian king 
uh, that Nehemiah is going to set himself up as the king. Sounds familiar? It's the same accusation that they tried before successfully with this same king when he had stopped the work. Sanballat's messenger brings an open letter, a letter that has not had the seal affixed on it, which could therefore be easily read in transit. The rumors it contained could thus soon be public knowledge. They didn't seal it. Soon the king himself, the Persian king, will have heard of this. Jerusalem is in riot again, and Nehemiah is crowning his own head. Unless you come and meet with us, they say, right now, the king is hearing about these rumors. Good old-fashioned blackmail. Nehemiah's response, you're making all this stuff up. This is not true. These are just lies. It took a lot of courage on Nehemiah's part to brush off these potentially dangerous accusations. And he admits to it. He admits that they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands, he prays again. When his enemies failed to lure him outside of the city and do him harm, they have another strategy up their sleeves. A prominent Jew, indeed one of the city, city's prophets in Jerusalem, informs Nehemiah that there is a price set on his head. Somebody is coming to kill you. The only salvation for Nehemiah, claims this prophet, is within the temple, is in the house of God within the temple. He says, let us go in and shut the doors. Seeking refuge in a temple area was legitimate, for Israelites had the right of asylum in the holy place, but it wasn't in the temple itself. It was at the altar of asylum in the temple court. Now here is this prophet urging Nehemiah that they enter the building of the temple itself, the house of God, and shut the doors behind him to remain safe. Now the counsel of a prophet would come with great authority. Nehemiah is faced with a decision. What would he do? Nehemiah at that point has a very interesting debate with himself. Here is what he says. But I said, should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. A man like me probably refers to his role as a governor. His position carries great responsibilities. He's the leader of these people, and he realizes that it would just not be fitting to show such fear and self-interest. Beside that, Nehemiah knows that the house of God, the temple itself, is for priests only. His fear 
of violating the temple is greater than his fear of personal attack. I will not go in, he says. Now he thinks this through. If the prophet says what I know is morally wrong, he cannot be speaking from God. Now he sees through the falsehood of these men, and he understands that the goal of his enemies was to frighten him to such extent that his reaction would bring him a bad name, he says, a bad reputation among his people. Had he run into the temple to save his life, the Jews would have despised him on one hand, and his relationship with the people he was inspiring and leading, and his relationship on, another, on the other hand with God would have been completely disturbed. He violates the temple. He disappoints the people with his cowardice. Of course, as his enemies knew, that would have guaranteed the end of that pestilent labor of building the wall. Now, the chapter 6 ends with Nehemiah reporting that the building of the wall was finished in 52 days an incredibly short time. By the end of his first year in office, Nehemiah is able to report that his task has been successfully completed. Nehemiah, well, he actually goes back to the court of the Persian king, back to his cup-bearing ways, until the affairs in Jerusalem get troubled again, and he is sent back in Nehemiah chapter 13. He returns from the king again to Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the city's walls and gates restored Jerusalem as a sovereign, self-governing city. Moreover, together with the rebuilding of the temple, the finished wall inspired the Jewish people to return to the law and keep pure away from the idolatry of the surrounding nations. By his actions, Nehemiah revived the dying Jewish community and endowed it with deathless vigor. In November 2007, the Jerusalem Post reported that the archaeologists have found the remains of this very wall that Nehemiah has built. The media reported on this story with a customary dose of astonishment that anything the Bible says would actually turn out to be true. Imagine. We who believe know that the Bible is written for our instruction. And so we read with a listening ear. It is often said that a person's character is best revealed and built in trials. Even the popular wisdom says so. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. I like learning this in English. 
The strongest steel is made in the hottest fire. We had that one. Uvatri se željezo kuje. They're international. When we think of biblical example of persistence through trials, of course we think of Jesus. He is an ultimate model of dedication to the cause of his father. Even when faced with numerous powerful enemies, even when frightened so much that he sweats blood in Gethsemane, Jesus persists until it is finished. Here in Nehemiah, we find another biblical example of faithful performance under fire. As he builds this wall, Nehemiah emerges as an impenetrable stronghold himself. Sturdy, robust, firm, and unyielding character in the face of continuous opposition. He simply will not put his hands down. And I like this painting because it kind of portrays the atmosphere of darkness surrounding the city while they're still at work. The hands will not be put down from work. Nehemiah persists with his mission and does not give up or give in to slanderers, liars, mockers, murderers. Nehemiah sets a good model of self-examination in the middle of temptation or trials. As if to remind himself of his own core beliefs, he asks, Should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? What is becoming, what is fitting for a person like me? He asks himself, Am I a kind of person who would do this? Am I a kind of person to drop my hands from my work because I'm afraid? Am I a kind of person to offend God to save my own life? What is my constitution? What am I made of? Nehemiah asks at this crucial moment. I found myself that that self-examination that Nehemiah conducted is very helpful in my own life. And here are just two very different examples. I recently finished my dissertation, and I'm telling you, if ever I contemplated dropping my hands from work, that was the mission that I nearly abandoned. And I repeatedly had to ask myself the question, am I a kind of woman who does not finish what the Lord has steered her up to start? Or, under other kind of pressure, when occasionally I have a heated argument with my husband, a handsome fellow there running the PowerPoint, I have to ask myself a question. Am I a kind of person who does not have enough grace to say, Forgive me. In trials, my character is tested and built. 
I'd like us to take some moments to reflect now on missions God has called each one of us to. During this reflection time, I'd like to use Nehemiah's short prayer, which I think is a wonderful breath prayer to use throughout your day. He says, Now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, through the time of reflection, when I start the prayer, please join in. Would you please bow your heads with me? What is it that you feel God has called you to do at this hour? Is it sharing your faith with somebody? Is it bettering your marriage? Are you called to raise your children in a godly way? Are you called to serve somebody who is very difficult to serve? Are you called to give up a sinful habit? What are you striving to build for the Lord? Now, O God, strengthen my hands. Will you pray that with me? Now, O God, strengthen my hands. What is the opposition that you are facing? Are you being mocked and ridiculed? Are you threatened and intimidated by the forces of evil? Are you simply discouraged or disheartened? Are you about ready to drop hands from your work? Now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Think of Nehemiah, a man who, while building a wall, built up his own character into a fortress. What are you made of? Are you a kind of person who abandons a mission out of fear or discouragement? Or are you a kind of person who prays through the fire and presses on, confident that the Lord, great and awesome, will come through for you? Now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Lord God, at this point we commit ourselves to you, the things that you have stirred up hearts and minds to do and accomplish. We want to persist in. We want to show faithfulness in trials and pressures and temptations of daily lives that we face. Lord, we thank you for the word that comes to us about others who have found themselves in similar struggles. We look to you and to your Son, our ultimate inspiration for holy living. 
we look to you and invite your spirit to come into our lives and empower us with great strength and courage to do your work, to build your walls, to accomplish your purposes in this world. Amen.